This is Archive Atlanta, episode 23, Atlanta Crackers. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week I am broaching a subject that I seriously knew nothing about, baseball. I grew up in a soccer-only family, and my baseball career ended in the third grade when I fainted from heat exhaustion in the outfield. I picked to play the outfield because it was the least exciting position, and then I also found out in elementary school that I'm very sensitive to the heat, so it was a pretty funny day, actually. I kind of woke up like in a movie with my teammates surrounding me. Um, My uncle was there. He had to carry me off the field. So yeah, no baseball for me after the third grade. Ironically, I was born in the shadow of Shea Stadium, which is home of the Mets, for those of you with less baseball knowledge than me. And in doing this research, I learned that the first baseball game with paying spectators actually took place in Corona, Queens, which is my exact neighborhood where I was born. So with this week's episode, I hope to redeem what seems to be my inevitable baseball roots with an entire episode about the Atlanta Crackers. Before getting started, I want to point out that the story of baseball in America, or at least until the 1950s, is one of parallel universes, the white side and the black side. And I struggled with how to include both stories in a logical way. Do I weave them together? Do I present one and then the other? And as the episode worked itself out, I finally decided that I'm going to try to tell these stories as chronologically as possible, woven together as they were in reality, and then, hence, in the way I think they should be shared. So let's start with the very beginning of American baseball. The first white team to play under modern rules would be the New York Knickerbockers, formed in 1845 as a social club for upper-middle-class New Yorkers, and they remained amateur throughout their existence. By 1857, there were 16 New York clubs that would band together to form the National Association of Baseball Players, and that's the NABBP. The NABBP was really baseball's first governing body, and by the following year, they started charging admission, like I said earlier, and then around this same time, um, 1859, is the first baseball game between two African-American teams. That would also take place in New York, um, and it would be between clubs from Queens and Brooklyn playing each other. I feel like I say Civil War at least three times an episode, but this is the South, and it's Georgia, so I guess it's going to come with a territory. But truly, the Civil War and baseball actually have a very strong relation that I didn't know about. Baseball, in its earliest iterations, was being played across the country with varying rules, and war was able to spread what was called the, quote, New York-style baseball through soldiers. So each person, um, you know, whatever state they are in, they're learning how to play. And then when they return to their respective hometowns, they would organize a team or, you know, show other people how to play. And this is how we start the path to becoming the national pastime, which is how we describe it now. By 1865, there are 100 clubs in this NABBP. And then two years later, we're at 400 clubs. And this is the rise of professional baseball's popularity. And it was also the height of black baseball's popularity. And the mecca for black baseball was in Philadelphia because Philadelphia had a sizable black population. 
What's interesting is that you can see the rise of both white and black men playing baseball, but there are yet to be rules regarding segregation. The first time we see it addressed is in Philly in 1867, when a black team applies to attend the NABBP convention and they're denied because of their race. And it's almost like this prompted the leaders of the organization to kind of come up with a rule. So by 1871, there's a formal rule to not allow any teams with black players. Major League Baseball officially starts in 1869 with the establishment of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And I'm assuming that most of us know that Major League Baseball is split into two factions. You have the National League and the American League. The National League would start in 1876, and it had no black players, with the exception of a recently discovered player whose name is William White. Um, He was black, but he passed as a white man. The American League forms in 1901, um, and like the National League, it neither had specific written rules about uh, allowing African-American players, um, but it also did have some. So there were some black players in 1884, but I think that when more de facto segregation starts becoming normal, especially the Jim Crow era, there's much more of a separation. But let's get down to Atlanta and talk about what's going on there. The year is 1866. We're barely a year out of the end of the war. And remember, there is not much left here in Sherman's wake. The city, its railroads are destroyed. There's only 400 structures that remained after the war. People are struggling to rebuild and reclaim a life in the ashes. Then add to that a smallpox outbreak. It's interesting to me to see the rise in popularity of sports or film in relation to wars or national crises, um, baseball was without a doubt a way to escape the stress and the despair of daily life. And the same thing's happening in Atlanta, so people just need a break. Tom Burnett, who is a merchant who owned the Ice House in downtown Atlanta, is crediting with organizing the sport in our city. He started the first team, and he named them the Atlanta Baseball Club. Now, these were young men, almost all of them just having returned from war, um, and their uniform was black pants and white shirts. Their practice field was right near Oakland Cemetery, so just about where the Georgia State football practice building is now. And they would take a few weeks, have some dry runs, before coming out and claiming their readiness to face an opponent. Now, the thing is, there were no other teams. Not too long after, a man named Robert, um, I think it's Dome, D-O-H-M-E, he entered the scene with his own baseball team. And they were called the Gate City Nine. They wore blue pants with a red stripe and an orange shirt. Now, Robert was a German immigrant who fought in the Union Army. And just like I said earlier, he learned baseball during the war. And after he settled in Atlanta, he wanted to start a team. So if you're following along, we finally have two teams. And so, of course, they now get to play each other. Atlanta's first ever baseball game took place on May 12, 1866. The first and only umpire of the game was named Sam Downs. He's a well-respected member of the community who also happened to own a downtown saloon. There were no gloves, no mask, and the baseball was tossed in a not-strategic way, which made for a lot of runs. The Gate City Nine won the game 127 to 29. And this would actually be pretty much the last game for the Atlanta Baseball Club 
uh, they would disband. But the Gate City Nine was really good, and they would play other teams around Georgia. And I read that after each of their big wins, they would gild their baseballs in gold. So to date, none of these balls have survived. And as an antique and estate sale aficionado, I imagine that maybe there's one hiding in an attic or in a chest somewhere waiting to be found. African-American baseball in Atlanta begins in very much the same way. Men with a penchant and love for the game begin to organize formal games between players. Now, most of these players were recruited from the historically black colleges on the west side, and these schools would play an important role. Baseball was the first sport ever organized at Morehouse College, which we then actually called Atlanta Baptist Seminary uh, in 1890. And Atlanta University had an undefeated team for seven years before Morehouse upset them with that first team. Baseball was also the only sport allowed on the Morris Brown campus. In 1896, the Atlanta Baseball League was created, which was basically just a conglomeration of the teams from the black colleges. Black Atlanta businessmen would sponsor the first team, and they named them the Atlanta Deppins. Because they had limited places to play, they would actually go barnstorming. And I had to look up barnstorming. I wasn't too sure what it meant. And the dictionary says, quote, to tour through rural districts or to travel from place to place making brief stops, end quote. And so that's exactly as it sounds. They would travel all around the South, um, play rural baseball, and then make the littlest bit amount of money they can from selling tickets to a game. Now think about this um, before 1900 or even after. It's really difficult for a black team to travel um, so that they just were having a hard time with that and not making money. So the Deppins would disband in the early 1900s. Atlanta baseball gets confusing or at least it confused me, teams would be created, then disbanded, then they'd pop up again and it'd have a different name. And it was all very informal and unorganized. Really, it's dependent on who had cash to come in and fund a team for that year. In 1872, our white team was called the Osceolas, and their star player was Charles Pemberton. That sounds familiar. He was the son of Coca-Cola inventor John Pemberton. There's a great little story about the Osceolas. So they played a team in Rome, Georgia, and the Rome team had a player by the name of Henry Grady. And yes, it was that Henry Grady. And Henry cheated by bringing in a really good player, I think it might have been a pitcher, from New York to ensure his team would beat, you know, the, the excellent Osceolas. Now, the Rome team won. Apparently, when they found out Henry cheated, they were so disgusted that they just disbanded the next year. What I think is funny is that by 1881, Henry Grady is living in Atlanta, and he's the managing editor of the Atlanta Constitution. He's still a huge baseball fan, so much so that he pushes to publish baseball stats in the paper. And I don't know if it was you know, the owner or somebody was yelling at him because it was expensive to publish these things, and he didn't think anybody else wanted to read them. He really pushed the formation of a league, and just a few years later, his wish was granted. The Southern League was formed in 1884, and Grady was elected president. It was a minor league, and it was made up of Southern teams. So our team here was the Atlanta Atlantans. I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's 
possibly the worst name we've ever had. Uh, they would play at Peter's Park, and that was at the corner of North Avenue and West Peachtree. So um, now we have the Marta Station and the Bank of America Plaza there. And they were good. They would win the pennant that first season. Now that league folds in 1888, it restarts in 1889, it goes away in 1890 and 1891. Remember when I said confusing? This is what I'm talking about. By 1892, they try again, and this time we're named the Atlanta Firecrackers. Now that would change because the next year we're called the Windjammers. So finally, in 1896, we become the Atlanta Crackers, which is the most familiar name we know today. As to why they chose the name Crackers, there are some theories. I think many of us know it as a derogatory term for poor white Southerner, but it also meant someone quick and efficient at a task. And then the third option is that it could have been related to the local plowboys who cracked the whip over their oxen. The simplest theory, and the one that makes the most sense at least to me, is that it's a shortened version of the firecrackers, which is what they were named just a few years before. The crackers would begin playing at Brisbane Park, which is what I think is now considered maybe Pittsburgh or Mechanicsville, um, and it's on Glen and Ira Streets. So what's funny is that it's a vacant lot now, so it's really easy to imagine what a small baseball stadium would have looked like, but lucky for us, it's actually on the 1892 aerial. And I love this freaking aerial. I know I talk about it all the time, but I posted a photo for you guys on the website um, so you can see the old stadium. Now, the Crackers would only exist for one year. They'd take a year off, they'd come back, and then by this time, the Southern League, as we know it, dies out. A newer, bigger organization takes its place, and that's the Southern Association. Started in Alabama in 1900, it would last all the way to 1961. So it's the longest thing I've mentioned so far. And this was still the minor leagues. So although it was a step above the Southern League, we're still about two steps below major league play. The Southern Association has an eight-team loop, and that included the Atlanta Crackers, as well as teams from Birmingham, Chattanooga, Memphis, among others. By 1902, the Atlanta Crackers begin playing their games at Piedmont Park. And at this point, no one local was really interested in owning the team, and so they were owned by an outsider named Charles Abner Powell. And if I got this story right... As the crackers get better and better, crowds start overflowing in the park, and Atlantans are like mad (laughs) that the outsider owns a team, hence he gets all the profits. So they start doing this like subtle sabotage. Uh, Once the city purchases Piedmont Park, I talked about that in episode 17, they begin charging fees to hold the games. So eventually this master plan works and Powell just gets tired of the drama and he sells the team in 1905 for about $20,000. This is when the search for a new place to play begins. The Georgia Railway and Electric Company owned a parcel of land across from the Ponce de Leon Amusement Park. And it also happens to own stock in the Atlanta Crackers. And this was actually really common. Streetcar companies would own baseball teams, and then they would strategically put them on their routes to increase ridership. And streetcar companies did the same with um, developing neighborhoods, like I said in the East Atlanta episode, and this happened in Inman Park as well. So back to this piece of land on ponds, it had a lake, so they drained the lake, they filled the area, and they built a $60,000 wooden stadium called Ponce de Leon Park, or Ponce, as the locals called it. 
The first game is played in May of 1907 to a crowd of about 8,200 spectators. Now, by the following year, the team is completely owned by the Georgia Railway and Electric, um, and they appoint John Heisman as the president. 1919 in the United States was known as the Red Summer. And the Red Summer was a period of massive racial violence and race riots all around the United States. It was in this turmoil that the Black Crackers were born. And this is the second attempt at forming an African-American team. Um, once again, they recruit the best talent from the historically Black colleges and universities, and they actually call themselves the Atlanta Cubs. In 1921, their name would be changed to the Black Crackers. Now, you may have strong opinions about the name, but we assume that they did it to connect themselves with the successful Atlanta White Crackers. And interestingly enough, the White Crackers would give their old uniforms to the Black Crackers, and when the White Crackers were on the road, the Black Crackers were allowed to play at the Ponce de Leon Park. Travel games were really difficult for a black team, like I said earlier, because there's few places for them to sleep or even eat. So when they did play at the park, the crowds were really sizable, and not all the fans were black. When the black team played, the fans could sit anywhere, but when the white crackers played, the seating was strictly segregated. And there are oral histories about black Atlantans um, explaining, you know, some would refuse to see any game there, and then some... It really had meaning for them to go and see a game and be able to sit in the white seats even for a few hours. In 1923, the stadium would be destroyed by a horrible fire. Flames are shooting 100 feet in the air. The telephones on the street literally become fire sticks, and it causes $75,000 worth of damage. That number sounds small, but if you adjust it for inflation, that's over a million dollars. They almost even had a death. The team secretary was apparently sleeping in his office, which was under the grandstand, and he barely made it out alive. Enter Rel Jackson Spiller, and he would shell out $250,000 to build a new concrete and steel park, which was the first of its kind in Atlanta, and some would argue it was the nicest park in the Southern Association. The Crackers would finish their season at uh, Georgia Tech's Grant Field, and they played their first game at Spiller Park, as is what we now called it. The stadium held almost 10,000 people. The right field bleachers were for white spectators, and the left field bleachers were for blacks. There was also a standing room only area that could hold another 6,000 people. And dead center in the outfield stood the infamous Magnolia Tree. Spiller Field would be the only one in baseball history to have rules allowing for a tree in the outfield, and it's been confirmed that only two people were able to hit home run balls into that tree. That's Eddie Matthews and Babe Ruth. The best part is, nothing of the stadium is left except the magnolia. And the tree sits behind the Home Depot Whole Foods development, but you can actually walk right past it when you're on the Atlanta Beltline. It was just a few years after Spiller Field was built that the old Ponce Amusement Park would be demolished and a new Sears and Roebuck retail store, warehouse, and regional office would be built. And guys, if you've been living under a rock, this is Ponce City Market. <laughs> so if you didn't know, the roof of Ponce City Market has a small Coney Island-like amusement park to pay tribute to what stood there before the building. Now, if we can only convince the shopping center to build a little small-scale baseball stadium, 
we'll be all set. Spiller Field also had some interesting stories. There was a community pool just outside third base, so the story goes that on slow games, the boys would go watch the girls swimming. There was also a Southern Railroad line that ran alongside the first baseline, so on slow traffic days, conductors would stop the train and watch a few innings. And having box seats at Spiller Field was just as prestigious as having them now at SunTrust or, you know, the new stadium. Gambling was also an issue in the outfield. There's a ton of really great stories. Um, and the legend is that gambling was illegal, but only under a roof. So since the bleachers were uncovered, bookies just crowded the stands and, and they would take bets at each batter when he stepped up. Apparently it got so out of control that the police had to crack down on it. Both the white and black crackers would have off and on years throughout their existence through the 20s and 30s. In 1920, the Negro Southern League would be founded in Atlanta, and the Black Crackers, who were already part of the National Association of Colored Professional Baseball, would become dues-paying members of the NSL. And they would stay part of this league until 1936, and it was thought of as really a league of farm teams for the National Black Baseball Leagues. When doing research, I learned that we don't have as much information available or sources for black baseball. It wasn't being covered by white newspapers, and there were not as many large black newspapers um, that early on in most cities. So for Atlanta, an example, the Daily World becomes the first African-American daily newspaper in the 30s. So that's when you really start to see an influx of information. For the black crackers, the team would not exist from 1928 to 1931, and then it was revived for a little while as the Black Panthers, but that never made it. 1937, there's new owners, and they really see a little bit financial success, so the following year, they get to join the Negro American League. Now, the Depression hit, I mean, the whole country hard. The difference with the White Crackers is they did have some struggle but um, the president of Coca-Cola, Robert Woodruff, would actually purchase the team in 1933 to keep them afloat. By the end of World War II, the early to mid-1940s, the Southern Association and the Atlanta Crackers were seeing record attendance. Atlanta broke records in 1946, and then by 1947, the famous Jackie Robinson had broken the color line and was the first African-American man to play Major League Baseball. I learned that he wasn't the best black player, talent-wise, but they chose him for his temperament um, as someone that they knew could handle the abuse and the insults that would come with integrating the game. In 1949, history would be made at the Ponce de Leon Park when Jackie Robinson and the Brooklyn Dodgers played three exhibition games to a record-breaking audience. And this is the first integrated professional sporting event in Atlanta's history. Over 25,000 fans were there to watch, and more than half of them were black. It would be the desegregation of Major League Baseball that would quote-unquote kill the Negro Leagues. The black crackers would make it all the way to 1949 before permanently disbanding. And the white crackers would hang on a little bit longer. But by the 1950s, the popularity of televised baseball games, it really took away from the draw of seeing it live. The Crackers had a final championship in 1962, um, and they got to play their last season in the new Atlanta Stadium. They formally disbanded in 1966, which is the same year that the Milwaukee Braves came to Atlanta. 
If baseball is your thing and you want names and stats and players and coaches, there is an incredible book I found in my library. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Remember that the Outfield Magnolia is still there, and I will get a photo, or I'll try to get a photo up on the website, but one of my favorite things to do is go up to the roof of Pond City Market, and then I pull up a photo of the old Ponzi Stadium on my phone, and I kind of let my mind wander. They also have really good frozen drinks up there, so if your mind needs some help wandering, you know, you're set. So there you have it, the story of the Atlanta Crackers, both white and black. Thank you for listening and sharing. All of the reviews and emails I've gotten this week have been amazing. It's the brightest part of my day, so keep them coming. And if you guys have suggestions or something you want to hear about, always let me know. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you guys next week.